You're about to listen to the message portion of our online service for May 10th, 2020. You can listen and watch the entire service on our website, Instagram TV, Facebook, or YouTube. Hey guys, a few months ago before COVID and we were all forced into quarantine, I had the privilege of sitting down with a seminary professor and an author and uh, just chatting with them about some of their ideas and their thoughts and some of their books. Uh, it was a great time, I loved it. And during that conversation, the seminary professor used a word I'd never heard of, habitus. Now don't feel bad if you don't know what it means, I didn't know what it means and I had to stop him and ask, you know, like raise my hand like, uh, can I just stop and ask, what is a habitus? And he said, it's the shared unconscious story of a people, of a person, of an organization that grants them their identity. And I was like, okay, but what is a habitus? Like I still didn't get it. I was like, can you dumb it down for someone who's, you know, 10 years old? Uh, and he said, it's the unconscious story that a group of people have heard so often that they don't even realize that it's what gives them their sense of identity. And different nations have habitus and different organizations. Our church, Horizon, has a habitus where a church start that gives us a different story than other churches. The things that we've overcome and the challenges that we faced um, all grant us this story which produce an identity. Someone who's had a traumatic injury or suffered traumatic abuse might have a habitus where they see themselves as a victim because they've had all this abuse and it ends up, it becomes this story through which is a lens through which they see themselves um, in the present. Organizations and countries have this and I think Jesus knew that stories shape communities. The shared collective story that subconsciously that a community accepts and believes and lives out ends up shaping who they are and how they behave. And I think Jesus told stories because he realized that not only did short stories shape communities, stories could reshape communities. And I think just as you're defined by some of the um, the big impactful moments of your life that have shaped this collective story you've accepted about yourself through which you now have an identity. Jesus knew that your, that identity could be reshaped through stories. And so Jesus would tell these short stories with everyday themes, things like fields and farming and sheep and vineyards. And through these, he would give us commentary on the way that he was living and loving, this different habitus, if you were, that this different shared story that he was offering for people to enter into. He says, okay, you're living in this reality, this identity based on this shared story. And he goes, I have a different story, same real world, but there's a different perspective of looking at this and it's gonna change everything in your life. And so over the last few weeks, I've been sharing some of these short stories of Jesus. I've been collecting several of his stories around a common theme into one cohesive story. And then I've been commentating on it and providing some insight into what I think he's saying to us today. So let me tell you a story. Once a long time ago, there was a winemaker who owned many vineyards in and around his community. And each morning he would get up early and he would walk up and down the rows of vines and trellises, checking the branches, 
breaking off or cutting off dead branches or branches that weren't producing fruit. On the branches that were producing tiny little grapes, he would prune them so that they didn't get too heavy, so there weren't too many grapes on one branch and the weight wouldn't cause the branches to break off from the vine. One morning as he went out early, looking over his vineyard, he realized that suddenly, without warning, the grapes had ripened. They were ready for harvest. And he knew that if he didn't harvest them quickly, they would actually spoil on the vine. So he gathered his workers and he said, we've got to do this harvest today. It has to get done or otherwise the grapes will be spoiled. It'll be a waste. All our harvest will be wasted. And he realized he didn't have enough workers. So he went into the marketplace because he knew that in the morning time, many times day laborers would go to the marketplace and wait looking for work. And so he went and he gathered up the workers in the marketplace and he said, look, I'll pay you five days wages if you will come out and help me harvest my grapes. They have to get harvested today. The workers were thrilled. Five days wages for one day's work. They quickly agreed and followed him out to his field. Once he got out to his field and they began to work for a few hours, uh, the clock turned to 9 a.m. and he realized at this rate they were never going to be finished with all the vineyards by the end of the day. So he went back to the marketplace. He found more workers there and he said, I will give you five days wages if you'll help me harvest all my grapes today. The workers were thrilled and they came and began to work in the vineyards. As he realized once again that they weren't making enough progress around noon, he went back to the market. Same thing again. He found more workers. He offered them five days pay. They came out and began to work. Around three, he realized still not going to get done in time. He went back to the marketplace, found more workers, offered them five days pay. They came and began to work. Around 5 p.m., it was almost the end of the day and they still had too much to do. And so he went back to the marketplace. He offered the workers their five days pay. They came out and they worked and they were able to finish the entire harvest. And so the winemaker called his foreman and he says, pay everyone their five days of wages, starting with the last, heading to the people who had come in first. And so he called the people who had worked from five to six and uh, paid them five days wages. He called the people who worked from three to six and paid them five days wages. He called the people who worked from noon to six, paid them five days wages. People who worked from nine to six, paid them five days wages. And then the people who had come around 6 a.m. Uh, were paid five days wages. And they said, hey, wait a minute, this isn't right. And the winemaker says, uh, what's the problem? We paid what I agreed to pay you. You said you were eager to work for five days wages. They said, yeah, yeah, but we've worked all day. Some of these people only worked an hour. We've been out here in the hot sun all day long. We should get more. And the winemaker sat silently for a long time before responding to them. And he says, am I not able to be generous with what I have? Have I not been generous with you? What business is it of yours if I choose to be generous with what I have with someone else? Are you truly angry with me because I am kind and generous as an employer? Take what I have given you. Go and rejoice. You have gotten five days wages. What business of it of yours is it if I give five days wages to someone else? And so as the workers departed, some celebrating their five days wages and some complaining about it. The, um, the winemaker began to take his harvest and began to process the wine. 
and uh, he had a great bounty. Soon, though, as the season turned and he began to think about expanding his production, he looked at a neighboring community and uh, he saw that there was an old ruined vineyard there. And so he went and he purchased the land and he began to replant the vineyard. He built a new wall around it and put a watchtower in it with a home for workers to live in. And uh, he just restored the whole vineyard and he put a wine press in the center of it and he began to prepare it to produce fruit. Now, since this was in a neighboring community, he couldn't keep his ritual of getting up early and walking up and down the vineyard. And so he hired local tenant farmers to live in the watchtower and to care for the vineyard. And he says, hey, when it comes to time of harvest, I'll take a percentage because I own the land and I restored it and I allow you to live here for free. You can keep a percentage as your pay, but I'll take a percentage as the landowner. The farmers agreed to this and the winemaker went away. When the time of harvest came and he began to harvest his own crops, he sent word to the farmers in this neighboring vineyard and he said, hey, send me the percentage of the harvest. And the servant who came and delivered the message, the farmers beat him and told him, we're not giving you anything. Uh, the winemaker was distressed by this and sent another servant and they beat that servant and sent him away with nothing. And so the winemaker sent a third servant and they beat that servant and sent him away with nothing. At this point, the winemaker's son spoke up and said, Father, let me go on your behalf. Though respect me because I am your son, I am your heir, and I will speak with them and reason with them and remind them of the vows that they made to pay a percentage to us as the landowner. And so the father agreed to this and the son went. And at first the farmers appeared to be agreeing to his terms and they took him up on top of the wall. But here they began to plot among themselves. As they looked out over the vineyard, they said to themselves, ah, if we kill the heir, the land can be ours. And so they grabbed a hold of the son and they threw him off of the wall that the father had built and the son fell down to his death. And when the father had heard that the wicked farmers had murdered his son, he gathered a great military force and he came to the vineyard and he reclaimed it and he imprisoned the farmers and brought them to justice and he restored the land to his rightful ownership. This theme of vines and vineyards came up in Jesus's teaching and he used the same picture in John 15. Starting in verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one that remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. I don't know a lot about vines or vineyards or wine. Uh, I did a little bit of research this week to try to learn more about these concepts. These were very common 
uh, everyday concepts in first century Palestine. Vines and vineyards and gardeners and wine were everywhere. But for me, uh, removed from that culture and that time, these aren't concepts I'm familiar with. I mean, the only time I've ever even tasted wine was I was at a church one time and they were having communion. I went down front and I took the bread and dipped it in what I thought was grape juice, put it in my mouth, and I was like, Wah. I was like, your grape juice is spoiled. Your grape juice is spoiled. And they were like, hey, idiot, that's called wine. And I was like, oh, I didn't know. I thought it was grape juice that had gone bad, you know? So I don't have a lot of experience in this area. Um, the only time I've been up close to a grapevine is my dad has a grapevine in his garden in Tennessee. He loves to grow things. And so he grows a variety of different plants. And he has a grapevine that he's been tending for. And I think we have a picture down here for you of my dad's grapevine. Um, and in my research, I found that grapevines require a lot of personal attention from a gardener. They don't do well just left on their own. If they don't have a trellis to guide them, they tend to grow up to a point and actually break themselves because they get too heavy. And so they need to be guided onto a trellis so that they can be safely uh, grow without uh, destroying themselves. They also, it takes a long period between the time when they're planted to when they start producing fruit, at least three years for a grapevine to begin producing grapes. And so that's a lot of time of tending and caring for a plant that isn't producing any fruit yet. And then once they do start producing fruit, they have to have their leaves pruned because they grow so many leaves that it covers the berries and actually blocks the sun from ripening the berries. So someone has to come through and cut the leaves, but not too many leaves so that they can still get nutrients from the sun, but cut enough leaves that the sun can hit the berries. The branches that are producing berries have to be pruned because too many berries will grow on a branch and the branch will actually break off of the vine and die. And so you have to cut off some of the fruit so that the fruit that remains will be mature and uh, great to eat. And so they require a lot of hands-on personal attention from a gardener. And I think it's interesting that Jesus chose this picture to describe how our Heavenly Father is invested in our spiritual growth and lives. He's hands-on involved in the daily pruning and nurturing of your spiritual life. Every spiritual journey requires a spiritual guide, and Yahweh is guiding you in your spiritual growth. He's making little prunes, he's uh, fertilizing, and he's guiding you as you grow. I found this a very encouraging concept. Now, Jesus here talks about the importance of abiding, or some of your translations may say remaining. The Greek word really has this idea of abiding in, or resting in, or uh, living, or dwelling in. And so, when he talks about this concept of abiding, he says, when you abide in me, he says, you're going to end up bearing fruit. And he says, the fruit is the fruit of discipleship. So what is he talking about? He's saying, if you abide in me, you're going to end up fulfilling the destiny of every disciple. The destiny of every disciple is to look like their master. A disciple is an apprentice of a way of life who follows a rabbi, their master, and begins to model their way of life. They begin to live and love like they did. They begin to look like their master. And so Jesus is saying, you abide in me, 
and you will end up looking like me. He says the fruit of discipleship is living and loving like he did. The result, the proof that you're a disciple is you begin to act like Jesus. And so I'm I'm fascinated by this passage. I want to look like Jesus. I want to be like my master. I want to live and love like him. So what do I need to put into place? How do I begin to abide, remain in him? Well, the first thing I want us to think about when it comes to what it means to spiritually abide in Christ is this idea of rest. Abiding is not running or wrestling or trying harder. Abiding is resting in Jesus Christ. He says something interesting in this passage. He says, without me, you can do nothing. And I think sometimes we think if we work hard enough, if we work long enough, if we put enough energy or effort or money behind something, we can make it happen. And what Jesus is saying is no spiritual good, no spiritual growth happens without Jesus being center and foremost and involved. We can't do it without him, and we desperately need him. And so I think we need a lot less working harder and a lot more waiting for the Spirit of God to move. After Jesus was resurrected, he told his followers, wait until the Holy Spirit comes to empower you to do the work that I've given you to do. They could have rushed out and said, he just gave us a mission to tell the whole world that he came back from the dead and that he offers a way of life, the best way of life that anyone could possibly live. Instead, they waited like they were told, and when the Holy Spirit came, he empowered them to live and love like Jesus and to take the message to the ends of the earth. I think too often we try to do stuff in our strength instead of waiting for the spiritual strength of God. That means we need to slow down, we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry, and we need to stop and wait and pray and say, Jesus, I need your power. I need your strength. I don't need to just rush through this message. I don't need to just rush through this day, but I'm going to sit here and wait until I know that you're with me and you're for me and you're going to empower me to live and love like you today. Because without you, I can do nothing. So abiding involves resting, but abiding also involves practice. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my teachings. You'll live out my teachings. He says that in another one of his passages, but it's reinforced here when he says, you know what it looks like to love me, as he says in the next passage following this one, he says it means to obey me. He says, I don't just call you servants, but I call you friends. He says a friend would lay down their life. And he says, I know that you're my friends when you obey my teachings. And so part of abiding is practicing the lifestyle of Jesus, the spiritual disciplines that he practiced when he was alive and saying, okay, Jesus practiced simplicity. Jesus practiced sacrifice. Jesus practiced submission to spiritual authority. How can I practice these things? Jesus promised that we will have joy when we abide in him. If abiding in him, part of that is practicing his teachings, his way of life, that means that We can't assume to have peace and joy just because we call ourselves Christians, but we don't practice the life that Christ lived. I think that many times we want the benefits of Christ's life while we continue to live our own selfish lives. 
And Jesus has only promised to give grace and peace and joy when we follow in the footsteps of the life that he lived, when we follow the spiritual behaviors that he practiced in life. So I think part of abiding is resting. Part of abiding is practicing his spiritual disciplines. Another part that he talks about is love. He talks about this a great deal in the passage following this one when he says, you need to remain in my love, that you need to abide in my love. And, uh, and then he goes on to say that we should share that love with other people. If we love God, we will love others. That's what 1 John tells us. And many times our inability to love someone else or maybe our admission that we hate someone else is a revelation that we're not abiding in the love of God. I need to go back and remind myself of how much that God loves me. I need to start every day with a mental picture of Jesus Christ, a first century rabbi carpenter telling me, you are loved. There is nothing you have done that will make me love you less. There is nothing you can do that will make me love you more. You are loved. If I start from that place, I can show love to people who are difficult to love or people who are unlovely throughout my day. When I remember that God has graciously loved me, a bad person, then I can show love to other bad people that I encounter. So abiding in Christ is resting. It is practicing his spiritual disciplines. It is reminding ourselves of his love so we can show his love. But last, it also involves pruning. It talks about how if the gardener loves us, he's going to prune us so that we can produce fruit. Now, pruning takes uh, two different forms. First, he's pruning dead branches. These are places in our lives that are destructive. They're selfish. The Bible calls these things sin. When we selfishly do what is best for us, even though it ends up hurting us in the long run, hurting other people, or hurting the world we live in, those things are sinful. And sin has ramifications across the globe. And as a result of sin, Jesus died to restore the relationship between Yahweh, God, and mankind. So there's some areas of my life where I have allowed dead, destructive, selfish things to remain. And I need to practice cutting those out and inviting God to cut those out of my life. But then there's also another part where pruning also involves sometimes giving up things that we are good at or that are bringing uh, good results in order to bring better results somewhere else. It talks about how a, uh, a gardener in a vineyard must prune branches that are producing fruit so that other branches can produce more fruit. This means sometimes giving up something that you might be celebrating or you think is going well so that you can focus your time and your energies on something else to make it even better. This is, in practice, the spiritual discipline of simplicity, where I'm saying no to some good things so I can say yes to the best things. I think if we begin to implement these spiritual practices of abiding, of resting, of living out the disciplines of Jesus Christ, of resting in his love and sharing his love, and then doing some self-pruning and inviting divine pruning, we will bear much fruit, fruit that pleases Jesus. We'll begin to look and speak and live and love like he did.